The Sunday Baroque podcast is made possible by WSHU and the Friends of Sunday Baroque. You can find out more about the Friends of Sunday Baroque and find out how to become one yourself by visiting our website, sundaybaroque.org, under the Contact tab. Grammy-winning American composer Richard Daniel Poor is a professor of music at the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA, and he's on the faculty of the Curtis Institute of Music. He's composed a broad variety of compositions, orchestral works, songs, brass and wind ensemble music, ballets, and much, much more. The recording of his new work, An American Mosaic, was released in March 2021, and I am so pleased and grateful that Richard Daniel Poor has agreed to talk to me via Zoom about it. Hello. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you, Suzanne. So, well, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, early in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, you were confronting and processing your own particular circumstances, your health, emotional state. We were, we were all going through that, right? And you were listening to pianist Simona Dinnerstein's recordings of music by Johann Sebastian Bach for comfort and solace. So, you know, what what led you there? What was your frame of mind at that point? Well, you know, I didn't, it, 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 it sort of coming to Simona's Bach was a kind of, of desperate move. I had in the very beginning of April, um, I had been told by my uh, pulmonologist that because of my asthma, my chances of surviving COVID, were I to contract the virus, were about 30%. Mm. Wow. And uh, this was was cause for a great deal of anxiety. He told me as of March 31st, he said, you're grounded for the next 45 days. I don't want you going out for anything. If you need something, have somebody get it for you and bring it to you. And um, during that time, I did not sleep. Uh, I would go to sleep for three hours and wake up at 2 a.m. What I did after a couple of days of nights of staring at the ceiling was start writing an opera libretto, which I, which I had sort of had as a result of a very strange and my one and only visit to Las Vegas in February. Um, and I came back with a crazy idea for a kind of uh dark comedy with a very tender ending and uh i thought to myself you know you can get busy living or get busy dying and uh i decided just while i I thought if i'm going to be up i might as well just be creative and i wrote the opera libretto in six weeks between the hours of 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. The name of the opera is the Grand Hotel Tartarus. I'm actually working right now on the on the uh, opera, which I, I've got about 13 minutes of it, uh, and I'll be working on this for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but as I was trying to get myself back to sleep after, let's say, by 5 a.m., I was just thoroughly exhausted. And, you know, I tried melatonin and I tried all kinds of sleep remedies and nothing was doing the trick. 
And finally, I remembered that just before the pandemic started to rear its ugly head, I found a recording, a CD recording. I still am one of those guys who likes to have the thing in his hand, you know, um, of the two and three part inventions uh, that Simona Ditterstein had released years ago with Sony. And I had it in my car. And um, I just thought that it was the most magnificent recording I'd ever heard of those inventions. And so I thought, let's see if she has anything else uh, on, on Spotify. And I realized she had a recording of the Goldberg Variations, which I later found out had been her breakthrough work. I also was it was not lost on me i was also aware that the goldbergs were originally written for an insomniac Uh, so i started playing them on my ipad and i would find myself going into this relaxed alpha state and i would fall asleep into one of the variations and uh and this went on for about a month at which point I'm, I'm finished with my opera libretto and I've got this idea in the meantime that I've been thinking about for this grand hour long piece for solo piano that I wanted to write to honor the heroes of this crisis. Um, and I figured, you know, I thought for a moment, I thought maybe this would be something for Yo-Yo. And then I thought, no, he's going to be playing. He's going to be putting the Bach suites on YouTube. I know him. And that's exactly what he did. And uh, so I thought, you know, the piano is my instrument. It has always been my best friend. And I'll do this for piano, you know. So anyway, what happened was toward the end of May, I just, you know, was so grateful for Simona's recordings and the fact that she kept me out of the hospital that I decided to call the director of the Oregon Bach Festival to see if I could get her email. I remembered that Simona had been at OBF the day after the premiere of The Passion of Yeshua. So we literally missed each other by a a day. The day I was leaving was the day she was arriving. But I remembered she was there right after me in July of 18. And so I called the director of Oregon Bach, Michael Anderson, and I said, can you please get me the email of this amazing woman? Um, I, you know, I told him what had happened and how she had basically saved me. (laughs) Um, And he said, oh, of course I can get you her email. She knows who you are. And Um, I'm sure she won't mind, but let me just give her a call today and make sure. Uh And the conversation moved on to other areas. And at one point he said, so what are you working on? And I said, well, I've just finished this uh, 100 minute oratorio two act opera (laughs) that I spent the wee hours of the morning writing over the last two months. But I've got this interesting idea to write a, a piece that pays tribute to the heroes of the pandemic. And I want to have these consolations, which are the equivalent of metaphorical angels who come to visit the suffering and give them comfort. I just have to find, and I want to do this in December on a live stream, but I, I, because I know we're going to be at our lowest point then, but I just have to find the right pianist. And there was a silence on the other end of the phone and he almost barely above a whisper said, what about Simona? (laughs) And I had, you know, in that, at that moment, you know, I hadn't even considered her. She was, to me, 
this goddess from Brooklyn who saved my hind parts, you know, <laughs> and and <laughs> I I just uh, you know had never even considered the possibility. But the moment he mentioned her, I thought, oh, this is exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote her a fan letter, which she responded to immediately. And we set up a FaceTime conversation. And in my letter, I said, P.S. I've got something that might interest you, a project that might interest you. And we talked about it. And she had confessed to me that she had been very sort of away from the piano and and that this was an intriguing idea for her because she wasn't doing anything and she would love a reason to get back to the piano. But then she started listening to my music and she said, I really want to do this. And and a week later, the Oregon Bach Festival commissioned the piece from me. And that is how I spent my summer. I began work on it on June 6th and I finished the, the pieces on August 5th. And then I realized it was only, yeah, it's pretty amazing wow. to do this in two months. And and <laughs> wow. it's crazy. And then I and then I realized. It was only 52 minutes long. It wasn't long enough for a concert so or a CD for that matter. And so Simona and I spoke about it and she said, I've got an idea. She said, why don't we, why don't you write three Bach transcriptions for me? Um, you could do whatever you'd like, maybe chorales, maybe an aria, whatever. And I said, that's a great idea. And she said, you know, Bach brought us together. We might as well include your transcriptions of Bach's music in this concert. And, you know, it's so interesting, Suzanne. I thought this was going to be a chore. (laughs) But it was one of the most inspiring and magnificent things I've ever attempted to do because I, I felt like I was standing in front of God while I was doing these transcriptions. I w- it was filled with all these aha moments. And of course, when I was 17 and I heard the St. Matthew Passion for the first time, that was the moment that I realized I was going to be a composer. Really? And so in a way, this was for me also a huge full circle. Yeah. Uh, and um and, and, you know, the rest, <laughs> you know, the rest is its own history. And uh, the, the, the thing that's most amazing about the CD, which was released on March 26th, is that I discovered just not too many days ago that it has had around 2 million streams on Apple Music. Wow. Which for classical music, I understand, is very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, as as you found, there's solace, there's inspiration. And, you know, that is something we are all so keenly aware of, of needing in these times. And so I'm, I'm sure that that's at least part of it. And I do want to I want to talk specifically about an American mosaic, but I do want to take a slight detour because the way you talk about Bach, um, the way Simona talks about Bach, the way all good musicians talk about Bach. I want to know what what is it about Bach? What is Bach's genius? What is his universality? What what is in this music that is able to provide this kind of inspiration and solace and comfort? Well, this this question that you're asking is the equivalent of of trying to prove the existence of God. Yes. Um, but, but, 
But, you know, if you want really to understand what makes a great composer great, I do this with my students all the time. Listen to a contemporary of that great artist. For instance, what I have my students do is I listen to a work of Telemann, who is a very good composer, good composer. And then I have them listen to something of Bach. And then they begin to see slight differences. You know, the music of Bach is a little more chromatic than the music of his time. There's more tension and release in the harmony. There is more of an emotional quality in the voice leading and the harmonic language. And rhythmically, it's always interesting and and inevitable without ever being predictable. Mm -hmm. If you listen to Carabini, you'll notice that the music is perfectly written, but it's a little predictable. Mm -hmm. With Beethoven, the vocal writing is sometimes very, very awkward. Singers, Thomas Hampson said to me when he sings Mozart, he feels like he's at a massage. When he sings Bach, he feels like he's been, when he sings Beethoven rather, he feels like he's been mugged. (laughs) So, so, you know, the, um, but, but when you listen to Beethoven after listening to Carabini, you realize that in, in spite of the vocal awkwardnesses, that nothing is predictable. Everything is an aha moment. You listen to the Misa Solemnis after you listen to the Carabini Requiem, you realize, oh my God. And then do the same thing with the C minor Requiem of Salieri, then listen to the Mozart Requiem. I did that for one of my classes at UCLA. And when they listened to the Mozart, a couple of the students started crying because they actually heard the music in the context of their time. So in a way, it's more, it's difficult to say why Bach is as great as he is, but it's, it's a lot easier to show why some of his contemporaries are not as great as Bach is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, you reminded me of that scene in the film Amadeus where, you know, there's Salieri's little melody to welcome him and then Mozart sort of takes it to the next level. So correct, correct. And, and, you know, it's, I mean, it's so interesting because I, at Juilliard, I, stu- I, I had an orchestration class with a composer named David Diamond, mm-hmm. who reminded me to the T of Salieri. And because there was all this tremendous jealousy and intrigue that Diamond had displayed with two of his so-called best friends, Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein, Mm. who were actually supposedly paying for Diamond's psychiatrist bills over many years. Um, And, you know, there's a moment, an amazing moment. And David Diamond was a really good composer, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you listen to Diamond's music and then you listen to Copeland, you realize the difference between what is good and what is great. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with memorability too, Suzanne. Mm. A lot of this has to do with what do you remember? Um, But, you know, there's that great, great moment in Amadeus, which is heartbreaking in which Salieri says, I mean, I remember being at, I was at the premiere run of Amadeus when it was a play that Peter Schaefer had written. It was, it was the first year I was actually a student at, at Juilliard, grad student at Juilliard, and I saw Ian McClellan and Tim Curry do the opening production. And, you know, uh, so the character of Salieri says to the audience, by my influence, I was able to ensure 
that Don Giovanni had only five performances in Vienna, but in secret, I went to every one of those five. And, you know, that sad, heartbreaking moment is something I saw (laughs) while I was a student at Juilliard. You know, um, it it was very, very touching. And, and, and so, you know, I mean, for me, one of the things, if, if, if I could be just technical for a moment, one of the things about Bach that makes his music so special for me is that there is this perfect balance between the vertical and the horizontal. It is a perfect balance between harmony and polyphony. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that was not unintentional in a way, all of Bach's music is in the shape of a cross, oh, um, interesting. because of this perfect balance of the vertical and the horizontal. Um, there's also, you know, there are also a number of things that if you really take the time to really, really dig in, you will find amazing things that most people don't know about. Bach's music my dear there's a there's an amazing pianist by the way that you don't know about his name is Stefano Greco he's a pianist who lives in Rome and he's a Bach specialist Hmm. and he's in the middle of writing a book about some extraordinary discoveries he's made about the art of fugue and Goldberg variations with John which John Elliott Gardner and Christian Wolff and nobody knows about Hmm. um and uh, and he came to UCLA doing a three-day residency, and it was absolutely amazing. Hmm. He knocked he knocked us on our butts with hmm. what he discovered, and he also played the entire Art of Fugue in one take on a live stream. Wow, per- perfectly right. But one of the things, I mean, he showed me, and this is true with a lot of works of Bach, if you take the first prelude and fugue in C major, right? The Mm -hmm. one everybody knows Mm -hmm. in book one, and you superimpose them, the prelude and the fugue, if you play them at the right tempo, they match perfectly harmonically. Wow. Now, who could think of that? I don't know. It's That's like, just unreal. It's like playing Beatles LPs backwards. <laughs> well, it's just, it's like there's a code for the tempo, yeah. you see. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a code for the tempo in the Goldberg variations. Wow. Uh, and there are two different codes because there's a different tempo for the minor key variations and a different tempo for the major key variations. And that's one of the reasons why the 15th variation is marked on Dante. It's the first time you see a tempo marking because that's a template for a different, for the 3G minor variations that all superimpose over one another, you see? Interesting. So, I mean, this is stuff most people don't know about Bach, but this is where, this is what brings me to my knees, wow. you see? Wow. Mm. All right, well, and I'm going to look we him wouldn't up. be talking about it if there wasn't so much love in the sound, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the thing that everybody was asking me, why Simona? You know, why not Richter? Why why not Glenn Gould? And I love those two other pianists right. who play Bach. I, I especially love Richter, but, um, and his recording of The Well-Tempered. But the thing about Simona, it's a little bit like when you go to a great restaurant and, you know, you go to a great restaurant, you can taste the love in the food. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With Simona, you can hear the love and the sound. Yeah. 
And that's really, for me, probably what got me to relax. <laughs> yeah. And for her, too, as a player and as a person, I think she's she's got a certain humility about her. I mean, she, it's really all about the music. It her. is all about the music, and there's a nurturing quality mm -hmm. in the way she approaches music. And also, one of the things I love about her approach to music is that she she prefers not to analyze. She's the opposite of Charles Rosen, you see. Mm -hmm. She prefers not to find a reason for everything, but rather than to let the reasons remain unspoken because it's once it's 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 sort of why, you know, in Orthodox Jewish communities, the name of God cannot be mentioned because the moment you mention the name of God, you objectify God and then lose the sense of presence, you know, of something mm -hmm. eternal. Mm -hmm. And, and in that same way, she is reluctant to try to analyze why that low trill in the Schubert B flat is there. What is it doing there? You know, mm -hmm. she just accepts that it's there and she makes it sing and she makes it speak for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she's also brought to life your 15 piano miniatures quite spectacularly and, and, and poignantly. Um, so let's talk about an American mosaic. Um, 15 piano miniatures, and each of them quite unique, quite contrasting. Some are, are tender and plaintive, and some are really extroverted and bold. And it is certainly your unique musical language. We talked about this, but, you know, there are also the the great composers of Rachmaninoff and Bernstein and Bach. You know, By the way, I, I don't like Rachmaninoff. So oh, that's, I mean, I'm not really a fan of Rachmaninoff. Okay. I try it. And even though, you know, but the, the difference between an amateur and a professional is that professionals know what they don't like. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a very famous story about George Zell and Peter Menon, who was the former president of Juilliard. And they used to go out to dinner with their wives and they would play this name that tune game and the person who lost would have to buy dinner for everybody else. And and Zell would always win and Menon would always lose. And Menon think, thought I had to find a way to stump him because, you know, this is costing me a lot of money going out to dinner all the time. So so he thought, ah, Zell, I know he, he can't stand Bruckner. So I'll find an ex ex excerpt from a Bruckner symphony. And so he plays it when they get together before dinner. And Zell said, that's dirty. That's playing dirty. Just because I don't like Bruckner, it doesn't mean I don't know it. Oh. <laughs> anyway, it's a digression. But... <laughs> so let's talk about, though, the, the individual uh, uh, various titles and, you know, caretakers and research physicians, teachers and students, documentary filmmakers and photographers, um, the invisible enemy. Boy, isn't that profound. So how, how did you go about crafting the character of the music for each of these groups? You know, I don't really know how this works, Suzanne. If I did, I'd probably start an agency and <laughs> manufacture great composers. Um, I, I don't understand how it really works, but what I can tell you is that as, uh, as I got older, um, I changed my way of approaching 
composition and writing music. When I was in my 20s and 30s, music was an act of will in which I felt I had to literally grind it out. It was like going to war and it was a war I had to win at all costs. And by the time I was in my mid thirties, I started to realize, you know, if I keep it up this way, I'll be dead by the time I'm 50, because this is too exhausting. Mm. So I started thinking about another way. I thought to myself, there must be another way and I'm determined to find it. And I started thinking about those old Jewish prophets who would sort of sit and wait, you know, until, until the truth would come to them and they would write it down, you know, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Mm -hmm. And um, I started thinking about the possibility of what if I, you know, if I'm at this point somewhat fluent in my craft, why not just empty myself out and wait and wait in that empty space until what I hear is real and true and receive it rather than try to manufacture it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you listen to the last quartets of Beethoven, or if you listen to the B minor mass, that music is not manufactured. That music was received, you know, mm -hmm. anything real is received, I think. And, and so I, I started, I started working that way. I started waiting um, you know, Stravinsky in his 80s in one of his interviews said, you know, and he, with his in, in his funny English with his Russian accent, I have learned to wait like an insect, he said. <laughs> and and I didn't understand what the hell he was talking about all those years ago. Now I get it, yeah. you know, that for me, writing is about waiting. Yeah. Yeah. And listening and uh, not being afraid of the empty space. And then all of a sudden, when you have that empty space and you surrender to the emptiness, something comes, something comes and you hear it. And if it's if it has any any validity or interest, you write it down. And and it's really it's really the way I've been working for half my life. Mm -hmm. So to, to answer the question is I, I, I had the overall architecture. Mm -hmm. um, but I had no idea what the music was going to be until I just sort of sat down and said, okay, what's this going to be? You know, what do we do now? Yeah. And I would sometimes sit and improvise. Sometimes I would walk around. Sometimes I would take a nap and wake up and immediately hear something. But I, I've, you know, I've done this so much. I mean, an American mosaic was my 136th commissioned work. Oh. Um, I've written five since then. And um, you, when you do this a lot, you get in the habit of knowing how to be a good conduit. Mm -hmm. You just have to make sure that you're mind is clear that you get enough sleep that you don't do drugs <laughs> that you don't um that you don't put undue pressure on yourself yeah. you know that you treat yourself decently and and then the stuff usually comes yeah yeah it's very organic it's very authentic too i hope so yeah so um i have i have a question for you so um most of the titles of the sections are pretty straightforward but who are the prophets and martyrs? 
Well, that was, you know, it's so interesting you bring that one up, Suzanne, because that was the one that I hadn't planned on. Oh. That was the only that was the only one that sort of came to me at the last minute as a kind of a surprise. Okay. Um, I was pretty upset about the George Floyd incident, but mm-hmm. most especially about the fact that the L.A. police arrested 200 peaceful protesters in Jackie Robinson Stadium mm-hmm. on the UCLA campus. And I was really just so angry. And I actually talked about it with my colleagues. And um, <clears throat> I wrote a letter. I was interviewed about it when I was really just furious. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought, you know, there needs to be some mention of Black lives lost during the pandemic. And that's what, that's, that's what Prophets and Martyrs is. Mm-hmm. And to me, the, gra- the, 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 the greatest American prophet we had along with Lincoln was Martin Luther King. Um, and, you know, I feel that Dr. King has been a huge inspiration to me all my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I have been speaking with distinguished American composer Richard Daniel Poor about his pandemic lockdown-inspired work and American Mosaic. Thank you so much for this poignant music, and thank you for our conversation today. It's been such a pleasure, Suzanne. Thank you very much.